This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. One of the big agenda items this year for the Trump administration is infrastructure. The recently released bill has the government contributing $200 billion with total input and impact reaching around $1.5 trillion. That impact was disputed to a degree by the Penn Wharton budget model run by Kent Smetters and Kimberly Burham. The White House then criticized the critique of their proposal. So we invited uh, our guests to come in. Uh, Kent Smetters joining us here in studio, professor in business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School, who you also hear uh, here on Sirius XM 111 every week with his show, Your Money. Uh, great seeing you again. Thanks good for to, coming in. Good to be here. So I guess uh, let's take a few steps back here and discuss the differences in terms of of the impact. The idea originally put out by the White House was we heard this one point five trillion dollar number thrown out. A lot of people, I think, assumed immediately that, oh, okay, the spend is going to be one point five trillion dollars. It ended up being two hundred billion with other impact coming from state, local and, and private uh, enterprise coming in as well. That's right. That was the hope is uh, if they could uh, get this huge kind of leverage, this big multiplier effect. So uh, early on, President Trump had committed to this $1.5 trillion infrastructure uh, 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 spend. And um, that's, you know, around, you know, uh, what many um, engineers and other experts have said is needed to, to kind of re- do a lot of repairs as well as rebuild and as well as new build um, th- throughout the country, probably a little shy of the two trillion kind of target um, that a lot of them are talking about. But the budget realities came in, and yeah. they, they couldn't get $1.5 trillion. And so the hope was, well, we'll do what $200 billion in the form of various matching and grants and so forth, and that will get this big leverage effect in state and local, along with some uh, public-private partnerships, would boost that money up by you know 750%, and then get us at the $1.5 trillion. The problem is, is that, you know, Academic studies of these types of grants have been analyzed many, many times in the past, and that type of multiplier is nowhere to be found in in the, in the academic literature. In, in fact, in the numbers that you brought forward, realistically, even with the $200 billion spend by the federal government, the overall impact was going to be either just marginally higher than that yeah. or significantly yeah. less than and that. And that's, that's the thing that a lot of people were kind of surprised about. We estimate that the $200 billion spending by the federal government um, could be uh, translated into, into a total spend of about $30 billion to $230 billion. Including the two hundred, And that's the key, yeah. including the $200 billion. Now, the question becomes, of course, if the government if the federal government's kicking in $200 billion, how could we get total spend actually less yeah. than $200 billion? And the reason why is the, the type of grants that they're talking about, these closed-ended targeted grants, yeah. um, they really don't have a marginal impact on the total spend. States can and localities can easily qualify for those grants even under so-called new spending projects that they're already going to do. Right. And so in terms of the true incremental impact, not a big impact. So quick analogy, if you're already going to spend, say, $10 at, for lunch at McDonald's, and I come along with a closed-ended grant, which basically says, 
I'll give you $5 voucher for every $10 that you spend at McDonald's, um, up to ten, up to $10 of your total spending. Um, then what, what's ultimately going to happen? You're probably not going to spend $15 at right. McDonald's. It's going to be no different than I just giving you a $5 bill. Right. It has a little bit of an income effect, but what it's really just doing is freeing up your other $5 to go spend on other things. And that's what we actually see with federal grants of this, of this type, is total state spending does go up by the amount of the grant. It's just that it gets spent on a lot of other things. Well, and, and I guess the uh, the concern is is the fact that of whether or not state and local governments would even have the ability to put in enough money to even come close to that multiplier that they were talking about. That's right. I mean, there's really two elements here. One, if you could finally crack the code that every administration has tried in the past, and this goes back decades, and the earliest literature on this is the early 1970s that's looked at data from the 50s, yeah. and that is this idea if we put in some money in this, in, you get some type of multiplier, not the 750% that the, the Trump administration is, is right. talking about, but at least some multiplier from the state and local uh, level. I mean, basically, no previous administration has figured out how to do that. Right. I mean, because of this inframarginal effect, they, they just absorb it, and it's all fungible, and they spend it on, on other things. But even if somehow that code could be cracked, um, states really don't have in their budgets the ability to cough up that other, you know, 80 percent that's needed or, um, you know, a 750 uh, uh, 7.5 multiplier uh, in, in order to qualify um, uh, for that money. Ken Smetters joining us here in studio to talk about the, uh, the infrastructure bill. All right. So you come out with your assessment. Yeah. And then the White House responds. Right. And your reaction to their responses. And I, I jokingly said to you before we went on the air, any press, any PR is good PR, yeah. which I, I think, it, it, you know, that's the old kind of uh, the philosophy that it, that is played out there. Yeah, it is. But we're, we don't play that game. Even during the yeah. tax reform bill, I mean, there were in, in infrastructure, we're the only guys really doing analysis, but in tax bill, um, there is, you know, other groups out there, and there's just a lot of clickbait going on, yeah. both on the on the right talking about some of these big, huge macro effects, and the left talking about some of these uh, horrific distributional effects. Yeah. And both of them were basically engaging in kind of clickbait, and a lot of misleading analysis on both sides. You know, our primary constituency is actually not the media; it's even not even the public. It's really members of Congress, and so most of the analysis we do is actually never posted on our website. It's directly for members of our of Congress. And that's what we essentially do is give them tools that they can use while actually designing legislation, not just waiting after they design legislation and hope that it gets some type of score. And so for us, it's about accuracy. Right. I mean, if, if in fact it's the analysis is good, I mean, that's, that's what we release. And exactly, you know, how people react to it, you know, it's, it's up to them. You know, sometimes the liberals are going to hit it, sometimes the conservatives are going to hit it, but it's, it's, it's about just doing a good job and let the chips fall where they may. Which, which takes these ideas and, and they brought forth the concern uh, of the fact that there is some level of bias yeah, in the yeah. reporting here. That basically throws that right out the window. It is. And one of the things they, they, the White House argued was they said our model lacks transparency. And, you know, we had a good <laughs> laugh on that one because um, we are the only guys out there, whether it's government or non-government group out there that's doing economic analysis of the budget yeah. that actually posts all of their equations online. You had great tweets about <laughs> that sh literally showing that how that was laying out yeah yeah i mean it's just you know uh, it, it, transparency i mean you could w w 
criticism and being critical of us is part of our, our culture. Right. We, we, we're part of an academic university. Um, it, it's criticism is good. We welcome that. All models can be improved and so forth. But we have by far the most detailed, most robust, detailed um, uh, and rigorous model out there. And so we're um, always happy to show our equations. But on, on top of that, um, you know, it, especially because we're so cutting edge, we, we really want the leading academics out there to give us feedback. And the way they see our model usually is online. They go there and um, they, they give us feedback. But it also does show that if, if members of Congress are using your work as kind of a guideline, uh, or a, another piece of information to this process, it does go to the quality of the work that you're doing, obviously with with your group at Penn Wharton Budget Model, but also, as you said, other academics that have probably been looking at this and, and giving their input in the last few months as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a great team. I mean, we uh, have a, a several dozen, uh, it's a split between economists and software engineers. We take the whole development process, the modeling, the data, um, the software process uh, very seriously. And it's, uh, it's true. It just started really with the tax debate yeah. that um, we became the kind of the go-to place. Part of it is the rigor, but also part of it, quite frankly, from a practical perspective, is the speed. That is, we're able to get out there um, fairly quickly um, with numbers. So some, of the, some, some people come to us just because they know we can do the analysis. Analysis. Right. Um, and uh, frankly, they're, they're not going to be able to understand the differences between the models. I mean, literally some of the tax models that were out there are really literally on Excel spreadsheets that were being used yeah. um, to, you know, create these, you know, crazy numbers bo on both sides. Um, and, and so it's for, for a lot of staffers in the capital, they're not going to necessarily understand the difference between that and a fully fledged kind of developed uh, 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 model. But at the same time, we can get things out. But then you have have, especially in the congressional committees, which tend to hire economists, tend to hire people who can make that distinction, right. we became the uh, go-to place in the tax debate um, simply because of the rigor. So, And we're talking with Kent Smetters uh, from here at the Wharton School, and you hear him uh, weekly here on Sirius XM 111. So then when you're, when you're thinking about the components of the uh, of the uh, infrastructure bill, obviously, there's the money that the that the federal government was talking about kicking in the 200 yeah. billion dollars. Then there's the component potentially of the state and local right. money that they would be kicking in. But the other part of it was the private sector and, and the hope that the private sector would be jumping on board. How do you react to to whether or not there would be an impact at all from the private sector sure. of jumping on board with this. Yeah, in a previous analysis, there's been lots of studies of at least previous attempts to do public-private partnerships and then federal, state, and local government pri partnerships. Typically, how the private partners are engaged are things like toll roads, yeah. where they help build and they get a certain uh, share of the receipts uh, uh, for a while. Um, and that's uh, we modeled that somewhat optimistically, and that is we've modeled that as the idea is that these toll taxes are, are what we call lump sum. They really don't distort behavior. If anything, that's kind of a, a pro-growth assumption right. in, the, in the infrastructure modeling. And in reality, one, things that, one of the things that we've seen in the past is that if you just hand it over completely to the private sector, they can extract a lot of rent sure. out of yeah. that. They can yeah. charge very kind of high, high, high prices. 
areas. And our analysis uh, ignored that component somewhat, I think, optimistically. And so that's why when you actually see pr uh, uh, private partnerships, in reality, not too many private companies own toll rules. There's, right. a, there's a couple of examples. In Texas, I think, in Indiana, yeah, I believe. There's a couple, but they're, they're very uncommon where it's full ownership um, that way, where they're, you know, they can charge whatever um, <coughs> uh, they want. Um, and then you see somewhat in sewage where, again, there's some revenue sure. sharing, things like that. Um, but it's, uh, it's all in the analysis, and um, it's, it's, we incorporated it all, and it's still, you know, you're not going to get this big, you know, Multiplier effect. Most of the money will just be in for marginal. So, what if instead of using the uh, the grant uh, type of model yeah. for doing this, uh, a lot of the conversation has also looked at uh, whether or not we need to have an increase in the gas tax in this country right. because it's it, it has basically been sitting idle now for what about twenty years at this yeah. point, and whether or not having an increase in the gas tax, whether it be 20 cents, 25 cents, whatever it would be, all of that money coming back in to the infrastructure part to help build out some of these plans that the White House would like to, to try and do. That's right. You, you, in order for the federal government to have the material impact on the level of infrastructure, there has to be – there's really two ways to do it. One is a kind of a direct spend model. So in particular, the federal government uh, controls directly Amtrak. They control directly a lot of the air traffic control systems, things that they directly control that yeah. the states can't easily offset um, uh, spend on. That's where the federal government can have uh, an impact on. But the second thing is is that you, you just actually flood the states with so much more spend than they otherwise would have done right. that it, it now has a much bigger impact. Impact. And and that's what the literature in the past has shown is what were known as these open-ended grants. Those, they, they don't have a 750% multiplier, right, right. but they still have a multiplier um, it, because they are they're actually gonna get, get, now going to get states to spend even on total more than they would have spent um, otherwise. But there, it's a much more costly solution. You need something like a gas tax to do it. I mean, another reason potentially for a gas tax, and economists on both, you know, on the left uh, as well as on the right, which is uh, more more on the right, but nonetheless, uh, we all kind of uh, have converged in basic agreement. You want a carbon tax because of carbon. Sure, I mean, yeah. That's, that's the yeah. main uh, problem is that we're leaving this huge intergenerational debt to the next generation in the form of carbon. It has very nonlinear impacts on the economy. But one certainly one way of spending it that I think is politically a little more palatable is that if people understand that gas taxes for roads, yeah. for whatever reason, that makes it sell easier. We saw that in New Jersey. We saw well, that in other. Didn't other sell states. real well in New Jersey, it but it's still well. yeah. It, but the, at least that 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 was the, the attempt. You know, policymakers right. try to say, you know, hey, well, we're taxing you, but you can see the result of this. It, but what it basically did was it stopped me from going to New Jersey to get my gas because <laughs> that's true. For people that are listening to us around the country, if you're living in Pennsylvania, there are many people that would go to New Jersey to get their gasoline because it was on average twenty five thirty cents that's a right. gallon cheaper. Then that got changed around when Governor Christie uh, instituted the gasoline tax. Yeah, but the same, basically eliminated. At the it. same time, you had to replace your, the shocks in your car a lot more. <laughs> well, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> the, the exactly roads right. were pretty bad. It's exactly <laughs> which is funny because because realistically, when all of the money was spent during the Obama administration, a lot of it was spent on 
the New Jersey Turnpike yeah, to yeah. improve the New Jersey Turnpike, and and that obviously was a huge project. Oh, you yeah. know, you're talking billions of dollars that were spent on that section of roadway alone. Yeah, and, and truthfully, that that is one of the problems, and this is the real tension, is that you don't want the federal government um, targeting you know the, the the classic bridge to nowhere. On right. one hand, you want to have the local governments being kicking in money. It's kind of a signal that if they're willing to put in some money. It's a signal that this is actually an important project, at, at least locally. The problem, though, is that if you're going into projects where the local and state uh, governments are already spending money on, that's where it becomes much more fungible. They just replace federal money with the uh, – well, they replace their own money with the federal money, and it right. frees up money kind of elsewhere. No one's kind of really figured out how to – you know crack that code. You either have to be fairly overwhelming um, with a big federal spend, like on the federal side, maybe you are spending the $1.5 trillion, yeah. um, and, or you're directly targeting um, federal uh, projects like you know Amtrak and things like but that. But again, the, the concern about actually doing a spend of the federal government of $1.5 trillion was the concern uh, of raising the, the debt yeah. even higher than we already are, which obviously took a, a huge jump in the last few years. Yeah, it's gonna t- it took a huge jump. It'll, be, it'll continue to grow. And that's, you know, we're not here to talk about it uh, today, but this is also the issue with trade. Um, sure. The irony about trade is that, you know, trade, if we really, cl- uh, it's a big gambit, right? It's a big gamble right now. Yeah. Uh, if these trade talks really lead to a trade war and they end up starting to close the U.S. economy, it doesn't just close the U.S. economy to goods and services. It also closes it to the opposite account, known as the financial account, the, tr- the flows that come in. Right. The, you know, the Trump administration is relying heavily on those flows to avoid um, you know, having this big uh, – the, the, the growing debt being a big problem. And so you know, if you're trying to do infrastructure while closing you know, trade, you're blowing up potential the debt, and you're, you're closing potentially trade, yeah. um, and that's going to have a really kind of negative macro effect. So you know, the, the ultimate goal of the administration, I think, is try to negotiate, use you know, these threats that they're using of tariffs to try to actually open up markets, actually yeah. have more trade, more capital flows, and that then you can start to you know, maybe tinker a little bit more with you know, the, the, the debt side of things. Ken Smetters of the Wharton School joining us here in studio. We're talking about the infrastructure bill and their assessment of that infrastructure bill. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we can bring it up on the show through that manner at biz radio 111 biz radio 111 or my twitter account which is at dan loney 21 one of the interesting statistics i saw going back to the the, the infrastructure yeah. bill is the fact that actually the spend on transportation whether it be bridge road roads whatever has actually been kind of declining over yeah. the last couple of decades which is surprising especially recently as i said with some of the bigger projects that we've seen done in this country in the last you know 10 years or so that's right. And, and so right now, state and local governments, and along with some smaller federal um, cost share, spend about $425 billion a year on infrastructure. Sounds like a big number. It, it is, certainly. You know, about 60% of that is just operations and maintenance. The other 40% is kind of what they call capital or new spend. Yep. Um, and, and keep in mind, if, we, if you actually get rid of it, uh, we saw this 
not far from here on South Street Bridge when they actually yeah. uh, uh, took away that bridge and replaced it with a new bridge. That's te- technically a capital spend and not operations and, and maintenance. So there's a lot of fungibility in these categories. But nonetheless, there's no question, on the, at least in the capital side, that's come down over time. State and local governments are basically saying they're cash-strapped. They don't have the money to do it. They figured in, in the past, a lot of that spending was supported by leveraging off their pension plans, the reserves. They're not allowed to spend that stuff directly, but they can leverage, they can do these pension obligation bonds against them, use them as collateral, which is kind of crazy, Tom. Which but puts the pension issue even into a deeper hole. That, that's right. That's yeah. right. And so it, it, it's, um, but that game's been played. Um, and, uh, and so they don't have a lot of room right now. State and local governments are Going to squeeze, and so they've definitely spend um, less. And we see this, you know, higher education is why a lot of states are, you know, increased tuition prices or allowed public, you know, schools to right. increase their tuition prices because they all kind of fill in a pinch, largely driven by pensions. Well, I think the other interesting piece to it is that also you're talking about uh, roads and bridges and airports yeah. and railways being key components of this, one of the things I I just want to touch on with you for a second is that it doesn't seem within all of that concern about what is considered infrastructure that we don't really consider digital as part of the the Internet, our digital footprint as part of our infrastructure these days. Yeah, I mean, I I was just uh, in D.C. a couple days ago and someone um, uh, from the administration made an excellent point. I mean, it, uh, essentially basically saying that, listen, I mean, uh, we, we the U.S. economy loses about $100 billion a year from cyber threats, yeah. from cybersecurity issues. And imagine, this was the old days, and, you know, people came up to our ports and they just, you know, ransacked us and walked away with $100 billion worth of stuff every, every year. We would be pretty, you know, upset about that. Um, you know, it, 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 cybersecurity is obviously a big issue. It's, it's an issue that the Trump administration is, in fact, very focused on. Right. Um, and they are, are, I think, are doing, uh, uh, taking that, that very seriously. Um, but nonetheless, uh, no question on that side. Uh, it, uh, cybersecurity is a big issue. And the second I- issue is, you know, as this, this we try to move toward autonomous vehicles, I mean, we're very far away from having an infrastructure that really supports yeah, that. Yeah. There's, I mean, everybody loves to talk about AI, machine learning, and so forth. I mean, the fact of the matter is those algorithms, it, it are gonna, are, don't, you can't rely on those. It's really a rules-based algorithm, right. and you have to have a lot more guidance. I mean, the, the, the stuff works fine in highways. It's when you get off the highways. Um, that, sure. That's when yeah. things get very, very challenging for autonomous vehicles. Again, the way for you to join in by phone is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send me a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Lee is in New York City. Lee, go ahead. Uh, Good morning. My name is Lee. I'm from New York. I did go to Wharton. When I was there, I studied a bit about the type of models I think you're speaking of. Uh, when has your cracking the code efforts ever involved using such things as part authority or SEPTA or the other interstate or interregional authorities that could be used for infrastructure investment? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, when the federal government is, you know, uh, get, giving out grants, I mean, they're giving it to state and local governments, and a lot of those take the form of something like SEPTA, that's the local transportation system, 
um, here in the Philadelphia um, area. So the way to think about it is that suppose SEPTA's operating budget was you know five hundred million dollars a year. The federal government comes in and they say, hey, you know, SEPTA needs some improvement on some type of line. Maybe it's laying down on some more cable or a yeah. new track or something yeah. like that. Um, and so they give you know $100 million for that. Well, that's $100 million less than the state and local government may have been spending um, themselves. Right. So they, they take that $100 million, they, they apply it to SEPTA, they fulfill the federal grant, and that frees up $100 million um, for you know, what the state otherwise would have spent themselves, and they spend it on other things. And so the, the real trick here is how do you get the states to actually spend on something that they wouldn't have done anyways. It's getting rid of this. How do you make it truly marginal, truly incremental? But the problem is if the states want to put in money for that, it may have been just kind of a dead project, yeah. that, you know, the bridge to nowhere. And so that's been the real tension that the federal government has had a really hard time figuring out. I'm not saying, I can't prove that there's no answer to this, but this, uh, you know, the literature itself goes back to 1974, which was some of the earliest uh, uh, papers. We surveyed over t uh, two dozen um, papers in our own analysis of this. And that data goes back to DOT projects in, uh, from the 1950s, and no administration since Eisenhower has figured out how to really uh, cause big incremental changes um, into infrastructure through federal grants, unless they do uh, either target projects that uh, stuff that the capital, like Amtrak and so forth, that they directly control, yeah. or um, use very kind of costly open-ended grants, um, which is we're talking about much bigger spend in that case. Lee, thanks very much for the call. The other part to it, Ken, is is the fact that uh, you know the, if you go back and look at the uh, the reporting from 1974 and compare it today, the cost of doing a yeah. lot of these projects is so significantly higher than what we than what we're dealing with back then. Yes, and another thing that's changed too is that. Um, back then, the federal government, believe it or not, um, we often think of the federal government as being more you know, involved today than back then. The federal government actually spent more money directly on infrastructure. Hmm. If you go back enough time— Percentage-wise. Uh, yeah, percentage-wise. Um, it's actually shifted more towards state and local governments over, over time. Um, and if you go back long enough, I mean, the federal government was often playing big roles in railroads and you know, lots of other things. Yeah. Um, uh, but in, nonetheless, um, it's kind of shifted over— over time. And so what we've seen is that these multipliers that people are hoping to get from the federal government have actually come down quite a bit. And the reason why is because, again, it becomes more inframarginal from the states. Yeah. It's like they're just giving them money to do what they otherwise would have done. So is, is there an expectation in your mind of how the, the, the White House can take this type of a, an idea? Because I think we all agree that this is a needed thing sure. for the country. Yeah. And, and put together a plan that seemingly, one, meets a lot of the fiscal issues, but yeah. two, doesn't run up the national debt as significantly as potentially we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, the the, the real um, the only real way it, it, it forward, I mean, would be some type of value-added tax like a gas tax to, to try to come up with revenue. Um, so you're not relying so much on debt uh, financing for this. Um, so you come up with revenue, and then the the, the grants really have to be these open-ended grants. Yeah. Um, and they can't be these closed-ended grants, which just become inframarginal. And so um, it, it, and the fact of the matter is, and then being realistic. I mean, if the White House 
you know, kicks in $1.5 trillion in the form of open-ended grants. Yeah. Maybe they're going to get a total spend of $1.7, $1.8 out of that. They're not going to get, you know, or, you know, um, you know, 750% on top of, of that number. Right. Well, the problem ends up becoming the timing of it also is the fact that you're trying to do something like this. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why they don't want to do the gas taxes if they get avoided is that they just did – the tax reform, which is putting a little bit more money in the pockets of the consumers every month in general. So yes. you're giving them in one direction, and then you're taking it right back in the other way. Yeah, and who you hit and you know, in some of the tax reform, I mean, if you think about the limitations, state and local expenses that hit you know, states yeah. that maybe the White House wasn't so concerned about, New York, New Jersey, California. The gas tax, now we're talking about uh, Ohio, Iowa, Nebraska, and so forth. Um, it, 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 these are states that you know I think are going to have a lot of pushback yeah. on something like uh, a gas tax. Uh, you know, on one hand, again, economists you know seem to have really converged on the need from some type of you know uh, real carbon policy. There's no real federal carbon policy, right? Um, uh, and so I think there's a convergence amongst economists on this. But nonetheless, um, it's it's a tough sell when you're in a country that's very heterogeneous spatially. Yeah. You have lots of cons. If it, we're all like kind of Europe and we're kind of very concentrated, then you can get away with a gas tax much easier than if you have some people are commuting 50 miles a day each way to go to work, like my dad did, yeah. you know, in Ohio. Great seeing you again, Kent. Great to be here. Thank you. Kent Smetters uh, from the Wharton School. And as we mentioned, you hear him uh, every week right here on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.